0: Osiris. This podcast is In The Loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you
1: love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.
0: DIY and Howe Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. We Music, culture, in the technology, and rock path. and roll. Now, on with the show.
1: Hey, folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show. We well, think of it as a Rock and Roll 101. We will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have The Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively, fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Farioli. And we just rolled out deeper digs in rock, single-topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it, more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon? Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Hello again, all you diggers out there, and welcome to this installment of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's ongoing series and deeper digs in rock i'm christian swain and i'm behind the mic in san francisco this is the place where we take an in-depth look at a wide range of topics all of which are connected to rock music in their own unique way hey please take a moment to subscribe rate and review this or any of our podcasts on itunes or wherever you get your favorite shows and if you love the rock and roll archaeology project and would like to help support the project well Please go to our website, rockandrollarchaeology.com, where you can choose either Patreon or PayPal to make a modest donation that will go to help us produce all of our shows. Finally, please tell a friend about us. Pass the secret word along. Okay, so let's get to it. This show is dedicated to a single day in rock and roll history, a day when four giants ended up at one special place for a single moment and someone was smart enough to get the tape machines going. Today is all about the Million Dollar Quartet.
0: Listen out. Be <laughs> now she is a little queen of space, and the men will not let her be. The
1: December 4th, 1956, a mild winter's day that might have been just like any other in the city of Memphis, Tennessee. But in this emerging metropolis of the American South, on the east bank of the Mississippi River, this particular Tuesday marked a date with rock and roll destiny. Four performers, all eventual legends in their own right, and all poor white Southerners, would gather together at the Memphis Recording Service at 706 Union Avenue for an informal and unplanned recording session. This historical accident created the de facto first-ever rock and roll supergroup. Two of the members of the foursome were scheduled to perform in the studio that day to sing and play piano, respectively, though the Piano Man had yet to release an album of his own at that time. Another one of the foursome, an up-and-coming country picker, was, according to various accounts, either swinging by to pick up a paycheck and listen in, or called in later by his producer for some additional publicity. We're not sure, and really, we don't think it matters. The important thing is, he was there. Finally, the fourth, the only member of the group who had any real notoriety by then, was was just stopping in to say hello to his former colleagues, but ended up sticking around to help make history. There's a reason Memphis is called the birthplace of rock and roll, and it is largely due to the vision of one man. 1923 into a sharecropping family. His father did not own the land they worked, but made a living of it nonetheless. Enlisting the help of Sam and his siblings after the onset of the Great Depression in 1929 made it too expensive to hire outside help. Young Sam found himself working the fields and picking cotton shoulder to shoulder with low-wage African-American laborers. Sam fell in love with the music he heard them singing as they worked together, developing an appreciation for gospel and blues at an early age. This was coupled with his enjoyment of white country music, like the tunes he heard on the Grand old Opry on the radio, which he listened to religiously as a youth. The amalgamation of these genres in his DNA begins to paint the picture of the man who would eventually earn the nickname the father of rock and roll. Now, that's quite a moniker, so let's pause a moment and unpack that a little. In a genre so diverse, born of so much collaboration, mixing, and borrowing, does one man deserve that title? The answer to that question is, of course, subjective. But we'll let Sun Studios' credits speak for themselves. I mean, we're just going to go ahead and list them right now. They're that impressive. Sam was the first to record and release songs by R&B, country and rock legends like B.B. King, Muddy Waters, Helen Wolf, Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley. Memphis with his family, teenage Sam was immediately smitten with the music culture there. The central nervous system of the scene was on Beale Street, and it made a last impression on him, as he shared in a 2001 NPR interview.
0: Beale Street convinced me that with the talent and everything coming out of the Delta, especially Black, I, I really wanted to try to do something with that talent because I was very close to it all of my life. I saw the great association between country music and black blues
1: in the South. In 1941, Sam's father passed away. In order to help take care of his mother, Sam dropped out of high school and took jobs in a grocery store and a funeral parlor before turning his ambition towards the music industry. He took a DJ job at a station that was known for playing records made by both white and black musicians, a pioneering move at the time, and a natural fit with Sam's tolerant background and diverse musical tastes. Just shy of ten years later, in January of 1950, Phillips opened the doors of the Memphis Recording Service. Almost anyone with a reasonable combination of ambition and talent could audition, Two years later, Sam launched his Sun Records label, which would remain active for 16 years, releasing 226 singles and launching numerous storied musical careers. The four young men who turned up that December day in 1956 and ended up playing and singing together were all tied together by Phillips' vision, as well as his unparalleled knack for recognizing and fostering musical talent. It wasn't who they were that made the Million Dollar Quartet's jam session such a special occasion. It was who they were going to be.
0: Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, now go, cat. Down, step in my face slander my name all lord a place, and do anything that you want to do but oh uh-uh, honey let up my shoes and don't you step on my blue
1: shoes. That was Carl Perkins singing his 1955 hit Blue Suede Shoes If you're more familiar with that particular tune being sung by ooh, somebody else you're not alone. In fact, writing great songs that only reached their peak of popularity when performed by other artists is really the hallmark of Perkins' long career. He never reached the level of frontman stardom that the other quartet alumni would, but he did find himself entrenched in rock and roll history in the making for years to come.
0: Time am young everywhere you go. Times it harder than ever been before. And the people are drifting from door to door. Can't find no heaven, I don't care where they go. oh. oh, oh.
1: Carl was born in Tennessee in 1932 to a poor farming family. Much like his eventual producer and manager, Sam Phillips, he found himself working his family's sharecropped cotton field at a young age, as early as six, according to some accounts. Also, like Phillips, this was how he was exposed to gospel music. And by age 10, he had blended the gospel sound with the popular country music on the radio, teaming up with his brother Jay to play guitar and sing for friends and family. Music came naturally to him and he spent his waking hours with either a cotton sack or a guitar in his hand from then on.
0: Now let me take you to the movie's mag so I can hold your hand Oh, it ain't that I don't like your house It's just that doggone man And I double bow behind the door It waits for Carl, I know Oh, climb upon old Becky's back, and let's ride to the big show. I only see her once a week, and that's when my work is through. I break new ground the whole week long with a mindset stayed on you. And I polished up my old horse, back, and she looks good, I know. So climb upon old Becky's back, and let's ride to the big show. Now, fast
1: forward to 1954. After performing in honky-tonks with his brother and holding odd jobs for several years, Carl had heard Elvis Presley on the radio and essentially dropped everything to Head to Memphis. He wanted to audition for Phillips at Sun Records, which had been Elvis' label. The song we just heard is called Movie Mag, and it was Carl's first single with Sun. He signed with the label sometime in the fall that year, and just a couple of months later, he was in the studio recording an album on December 4th, when Elvis walked in the door. Unlike the King, as we have said before, Carl would never become a national star in his own right. His early career was beset by a terrible car accident in March of 1956. The band was on their way in the wee hours of the morning from a gig in Virginia to New York, where they were to appear on the Perry Como show, but they rear-ended a pickup truck and wound up in a ditch on the side of the road. The driver of the pickup was killed and both Carl and Jay Perkins suffered considerable injuries. It's unclear whether the national exposure the band missed out on would have catapulted Carl to the level of stardom he sought, and frankly, we'll never know. Elvis Presley heard about Carl's misfortune and sent him a telegram wishing him a speedy recovery. Meanwhile, the king continued his march to superstardom, unimpeded. (laughs)
0: To forget her I can't seem to get her off my mind I thought I'd never miss her But I
1: found out somehow I think about her almost all the time While Carl was convalescing, blue suede shoes hit number one on the R&B charts. He recovered and returned to touring a month or so later, but Jay never did. His health continued to decline, and in 1958, shortly after the accident, Jay was diagnosed with a brain tumor, to which he succumbed that same year. Jay's death really devastated Carl. He began drinking heavily and battled with depression and eventually left Sun Records for Columbia. He was looking to shake things up and trying to find the full-fledged stardom that would never come. Later, Carl toured the UK with none other than Chuck Berry in 1964, where he met the Beatles, who were big fans of his. After this meeting, the Fab Four would go on to record popular versions of numerous Carl Perkins songs, including Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby and Honey Don't. It's hard to say definitively whether the successful tour truly reinvigorated Carl. After being back stateside for a while, he began touring regularly with Johnny Cash. He played opening sets for him, accompanying Cash's band and helped the iconic rockabilly frontman write new material. Despite this minor career renaissance, Carl's drinking and depression continued, reportedly culminating in an episode of delirium tremens near San Diego in 1968, where he is said to have thrown his final bottle of whiskey into the Pacific and vowed to get sober. It's difficult to separate the reality and myth of this dramatic moment, but Carl did sober up, and later that year, Cash released Perkins' Daddy Sang Bass to become a number one hit. Carl seemed to meet almost everybody in the business and went on in later years to collaborate with the likes of Cash, Bob Dylan, and Paul McCartney. In fact, one of his most famous bandmates of all time was right there at the piano the day the Million Dollar Quartet got together. was Jerry Lee Lewis with 1957's Crazy Arms. That song and other hits like Great Balls of Fire propelled him to elite heights of early rock and roll fame. His riotously energetic performances catapulted him to stardom. But unlike Carl Perkins, and much to the dismay of both Lewis and Sam Phillips, his promising career would end almost before it began. Jerry's personal demons and struggles would get the better of him and sink him. Less than two years after the Million Dollar Quartet jam session, a scandal erupted after word got out that Jerry Lee, age 22, had married his 13-year-old first cousin once removed. Rock and roll fans and detractors alike were shocked and appalled. His career took a nosedive and never quite recovered. We covered Jerry Lee Lewis and his short but highly publicized and seminal career in episode three of our main podcast. Head over to our website and have a listen for more details on the man and his music. Despite the brevity of his major popularity, Jerry Lee had turned legions of fans onto the country-inspired, fast-paced rock performances and sound that were fast becoming a phenomenon.
0: I remember when I was a lad, times were hard and things were bad. But there's a silver lining behind every cloud. Just four people, that's all we were. Trying to make a living out of black lander. But we'd get together in a family circle singing loud. Daddy sang bass. Mama sang dinner. Me and little brother would join right in there. Singing seems to help a troubled soul. One of these days, and it won't be long. I'll rejoin them in a song. I'm going to join the family circle at the throne.
1: Today, it is hard to even mention the term rockabilly without immediately thinking of one of the other members of the quartet. In 1956, Johnny Cash was known only on the country circuit, which was more or less confined to a number of southern states he would, of course, eventually become beloved, respected, and emulated by country and rock musicians and audiences for decades to come. Johnny had originally come to San Phillips and Sun Records after moving to Memphis with his first wife, Vivian. He auditioned a few gospel songs with which Phillips was unimpressed before trying out some of his original compositions in a more rockabilly style. These auditions are immortalized albeit embellished in the 2005 biopic, Walk the Line. Later, he would gain broader appeal after his hard rock style performances in San Quentin and Folsom prisons, which marked a sort of personal renaissance after a years long battle with drug and alcohol addiction. His iconic sound and image as an outlaw resonated with inmates and the country rock consuming fan base in general. On stage with his second wife, June Carter Cash, he shared with her an undeniable chemistry of alternating charm and grit that remains irresistible to fans today. We dedicated episode five of our original podcast series exclusively to Johnny and Bob Dylan, and we recommend diving into that for a closer look at the man in black. That leaves us with just one member of the Million Dollar Quartet remaining the man who would be king.
0: Coaches long, train I ride, 16 coaches long, while well, that long black train got my baby and gone, train, train, coming round, round the bend.
1: By 1956, Elvis Presley was by far the biggest star the acts Sam Phillips had discovered and recorded, and for that matter, he still is. Unlike his counterparts in the quartet, he had already moved beyond the comparatively small-time operation at Sun Records and signed with RCA Victor. Phillips had released him a little over a year before the quartet assembled for $40,000, a staggering sum for the day. By the time Elvis met up with Carl, Jerry Lee, and Johnny on that December afternoon, he had already enjoyed national success and had just wrapped up filming his first movie, Love Me Tender. He still had affection for Sun Records and considered it the place where he got a start, so he decided to drop in, say hello to Sam, and see what was happening on Union Avenue. The entire second episode of our main podcast narrative is devoted to Elvis and the rise of television. So please go have a listen to that for much, much more on the most famous performer in rock and roll history.
0: Oh, what was you playing a while ago, Carl, A? Did you play an A while ago? Well, I'm on a lay down, I'm on bird Down by the riverside <laughs> Down by the riverside <laughs> Down by the riverside, <laughs> by the riverside I'm on a lay down, I'm on bird Down by the riverside Study <laughs> one on one well, I ain't gonna study no more. I ain't gonna study
1: So here we are, back at December 4th, 1956. There are conflicting accounts of how the Million Dollar Quartet all came to be in the studio in the first place and how they even came to be recorded at all. We know for certain that Carl was booked for a recording session that day and Jerry Lee had been brought in by Sam Phillips to play piano with the band. In his autobiography, Cash, Johnny claims to have been the first to arrive because he wanted to listen in on Carl's session. There's some debate about... When he got there, it's been asserted that he was just dropping in to grab his paycheck from Sound Records, or was perhaps called in after Elvis showed up so that Sam could pad his rising country singer with some publicity. Sam did phone a local reporter and photographer, and got them to the studio to document and publicize the moment. Once again, we don't know all the particulars for certain, but it doesn't really matter that much.
0: Just a little talk with Jesus. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. I once was lost in sin, but, but Jesus took me in. Well, then a little light from heaven filled my soul. Oh, then he made, made my and love, and he made my heart in love, and he wrote my name Lord. above. Well, and just a little talk I with my Jesus gonna make me it right. I let us have a little talk with Jesus. Jesus. i, I a little a little tell him all about a troubles.
1: In his book, The Million Dollar Quartet, our primary source for this discussion, author Stephen Miller makes a point to note that in spite of the panic instilled in parents across the nation by this new music that was supposedly beginning to define a rebellious youth culture, inflaming passions and instilling vice, All four of the quartet members shared a common religious upbringing and a special reverence for gospel music. In fact, old traditional gospel hymns make up a good chunk of the recordings on the albums. It's worth noting that these songs all of the fellas knew and sung, including old-time religious classics like On the Jericho Road and Jesus Walked That Lonesome Valley, The conservative parents of their generation were, by and large, too concerned with what Elvis' hips were doing on television to stop and bother to notice that these rock-and-roll devil children were releasing albums packed with old gospel tunes. The tracks recorded by the Million Dollar Quartet are perfect examples, but sometimes perception trumps reality, and the artist would just have to accept it. Their music would, of course, eventually be embraced and validated the world over. But for the time being, they would have to be content as rowdy kids inciting a generation to God knows what ends. Fame and the trouble it would bring were still a ways down the road for all of these young men. Although all of them, besides Elvis, were still struggling to make a name for themselves musically. They had not yet exchanged the trials of poverty for the complications brought on by fortune and superstardom. All of them would battle drug and alcohol addiction at various times. There would be divorces and scandals of varying scopes. But all that wasn't readily apparent then. These young men were all on the rise, and they were all still having fun.
0: Everybody's going out and having fun. having fun. I'm just a fool for staying home and having none. Having I can't fun. get over how she set me free. Oh, for me. A bad mistake <laughs> I'm thinking about just hanging around. <laughs> I know that I should have...
1: This was a special moment in rock and roll immortalized in an album perpetuated in a Broadway show and currently part of a TV series in production called sun records due to air on the CW this year. Thanks again for joining us and keep up the rocking. We'll see you next time on deeper digs in rock.
0: On December 4th, 1956, one man brought Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Elvis Presley to play together for the first and only time. That man was me. Sam Phillips. The place was Sun Records. And that night, we made rock and roll history. Well, it's one for the money, two, two for, the for the show, team. three to get ready. Well, now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my new suede shoes?
1: Well, you can do anything. My name all over
0: the place. Do anything that want to do, but the will honey lay up for my shoes. don't you step on my blue
1: you can do lay my blue shoes. Look Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help.
0: Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.